Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Bruce. I uh, Back in Edmonton, I was away for a couple of weeks in beautiful Vancouver, which really is a beautiful city. They've done, as I was telling you just before I came on, they've done, they have done such a fantastic job with their oceanfront. I mean, you go to a city like Seattle, and so much of it is private property along the ocean, but they literally, they must have, I don't know, it seems like 20 kilometers, Bruce, of seawall right along the ocean, um, you know, where you're right up against the water. They've done it right, and I got to give that city credit for that. Like, not every city got that right. Edmonton is, I, you know, we've done well in protecting our river valley lands, but we don't have that that trail right on the water's edge, which is, there's something to me magical about walking right along the water. Mm-hmm. So um, I did a lot of that. And yeah. one of the gross, the gross grind, that was, that was uh, fun. Uh, yeah, had a good, and we saw the movie Elvis, Bruce. If you haven't seen the movie Elvis, mm-hmm. I'm highly recommending it. Highly mm-hmm. recommending it. And I'm not an Elvis fan. Um, but that is a fantastic movie, very fun and entertaining, but also tells quite a story. I don't know how true the story is. Like it's a biopic, but you know, they always kind of. Oh, biopic on Elvis Merzlikens. <laughs> exactly. He's had a very interesting life coming out of Lithuania or wherever he's from. He's anyway. From, he is from Latvia and all the guys that have S's at the end of both their names, that's a dead giveaway. Yes, they must be named after. I wonder if they're named after Elvis Presley. Elvis is well. Elvis might be a Latvian name because of well, that, an S. Mm, yeah, so, I don't know right. about that. Maybe. Are, are you an Elvis fan, Presley fan? Uh, well, yes. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I was never sorry. He was never my number one, but uh, I always uh, appreciate and respected. And I, when I came on, his best years were in the rear view. You know, he did. He came up with a couple big hits like Suspicious Minds and in the ghetto towards the end. And then, of course, he died uh, when I was still relatively young. I mean, 1977, wasn't it? Correct. That he died. And so uh, and he still had years in front of him, you would have thought at that time. But anyway, it was a uh, uh, it was a, uh, a meteoric career that he did have. So I, I only remember the fat Elvis phase myself because I was 10 years old in mm-hmm. 1972. So, you know, when you start listening to music and, and so I remember those later songs too, and you know, all the fat Elvis stuff and that's part of the movie, but this really movie, this movie really focuses on uh, what made him so hypnotic as a performer and also uh, the, the terrible, the terrible um, relationship he had with his manager, Tom Parker, which was very similar to bring this back to hockey to the manager, the, the relationship that players would have had with NHL management in the 1950s. Absolutely um, exploiting. <laughs> yeah, Jack Adams could be, I'm not going to, could he be Colonel Tom Parker? That's an interesting question. But there was all kinds of, you know, coming out of the Depression and the war, people's expectations were pretty low and their education wasn't high. And people got, performers of all kinds just got exploited terribly in the 50s. And and, uh, and Elvis was certainly one of them. He was the Gordie Howe of uh, music, but they all were. They all just got shafted by those guys. So anyway, the movie's about that as well. The great Glenn Hall uh, of uh, uh, nearby Stony Plain, Alberta, uh, had some 
very fractious negotiations with Jack Adams before he got traded. And after his great rookie season uh, in 1955-56, uh, uh, I believe this was when he uh, uh, went in and got a, negotiated a big contract raise of $500 on the season. I think he went from 5000 to 5500 or something in that range. And Jack Adams says, normally we just give the rookies the same pay the second year, but uh, we're going to give you a raise because you played so well. It's just promise you don't tell anybody about it. And Glenn Hall says, don't, wor- don't worry, Mr. Adams, I won't. I'm ashamed of it, too. <laughs> well, that was the attitude the people had, right, Bruce? Like Gordie Howe, right? The famous story of Gordie Howe. Glenn Hall. Yeah. <laughs> oh, was he, well, was he ashamed of it? It he he was ashamed of how low it was. I yeah, it. It was he, I thought he was being humble there. But yeah, no, no, he was. So uh, he was given the opposite side of it. And okay, I missed that. I had the Gordy House story so firmly in my head because he was so humble, of course, right? Because yeah. you was fill Norris, in the number, Mister Adams, and Mister Adams would fill in a low ball number every year. Was it Adams in Detroit or Detroit? Was it a? Uh, was, was it another Adams in Jack Detroit? Adams. Oh, the same guy. Okay, Trader Jack Adams. Yeah, these guys, these guys yeah. were such con men and they knew how to manipulate guys like Gordy Howe yeah fill a number Gordy and he was just so humble and shy that he would put the most modest raise every year although he was a league's MVP by then and uh, grossly underpaid throughout his hockey career maybe in the end in his when he hit his 40s in his in his third decade in hockey he started to get paid commensurate with his abilities as a, as a player when Bob Bond was his roommate and informed Gordy that he, Bob Bond, made more than Gordy did because he negotiated and Gordy and his wife Colleen then sort of sort of got militant after that. But uh, that was one of the reasons the players wanted to make their salaries public to bring it back to the current day was that because when they didn't, uh, owners would take advantage of at least some of them. And so the, with the salaries being public, the players consider themselves to be more on a level playing field field that was a big push for the players union is the book there's a if you're interested in this particular topic there is a book by allison griffiths and david cruz i believe is that the name of those two writers uh called is it net worth i'll just Mm -hmm. bruce Bruce. um Mm -hmm. because i think that's a fantastic recounting just make sure i have that right uh of that this era of the nhl and all that went on and um, things were different back then. Net worth, David Cruz, Allison. All right, Bruce, we're going to talk about the Oilers, as Jack Michaels calls them. Net worth, exploding the myths of pro hockey by David Cruz and Allison Griffiths, which was a pretty. It was came out, I think, in 1991, and it was a pretty big book for its time, even to to reveal all of that, put it all together, and reveal it all at once. Okay, um, we'll talk about. The Yanmark signing. We'll yeah. talk about Pulyu Yarvi and Yamamoto's coming possible arbitration. They're, they filed for arbitration. Uh, we'll talk about Ken Holland's summer to date, and we'll give him a grade. I don't think it's premature to do that. He still may make a move or two. And um, let's start it off then, Bruce. Yanmark. Uh, Mm. Most people don't have a strong image of Matthias Janmark's game. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a quiet player. I, I, I mean, I, 
I've seen him play for years yeah. and I just don't, I have no image of him in my head as a player. I like, I, I don't, I can't think of how he plays hockey. Mm-hmm. So it's a quiet game that he plays. And of course I'm obviously obsessed and focused on the Oilers. Even when I'm watching them play another team, I don't really pay attention to the other players too much. So tell me about him. What, what do you think of the signing and what does he bring? To, what's the pros and cons of it? Uh, yeah, he's, I would say quietly effective. That's how I would describe him. Uh, he is uh, a 29-year-old player with you know 420 games of NHL experience plus another 60 in the playoffs. He's been around. Uh, he was a former Ken Holland draft choice with Detroit uh, before he got moved off in one of Holland's trade deadline deals where he would trade prospects and picks uh, for other players. Uh, who were closer to being able to help right now, and he traded Janmark and the draft pick that became Rupee Hints for uh, the used-up uh, uh, remainder of Eric Cole, and I think it was 2013. Very bad trade for Detroit. Um, and Janmark, I mean, you don't know what the draft choice is going to be, but that's the risk you take. Uh, Janmark himself went on to be, like I say, a quietly effective player, uh, he scores on a per 82 basis, about 13 goals and 31 points. Uh, doesn't play a lot on the power play. You know, he's the second power play guy, second penalty kill kind of guy. Plays about a minute on each unit and about 15 minutes overall per night. So, you know, it's, I would say, a, a specifically a third line player. I was going to say top nine, but he's the third line of the three. Uh, regular and um, uh, you know pretty I would say almost vanilla like he reminds me a little bit my friend uh, Jonathan Willis made the comparison that I very nearly made in the post I wrote about uh, about um, Janmark I thought of this exact same guy uh, Marcus Granlund that the Oilers signed in the summer of 2019 out of uh, out of Vancouver now, looking statistically, Jan Marks will cut above uh, Marcus Granlund and I actually signed him for less, so just a $1.25 million bet for a one-year contract. And to me, it's a good, solid, safe veteran at a, at a fairly modest price, you know, 500000 over the minimum, I guess. But, uh, uh, you know, he's not exactly some rookie that hasn't proven himself either. He's uh, been around the block a few times, and he's gone deep in the playoffs a couple times. It's interesting to me. Um, they talked about signing a physical player mm-hmm. he ain't uh, for the fourth line, and this guy is not a physical player at all. He hardly hits. I mean, that's the, that's the truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, I'm not saying he's not a valuable player. And again, I'm going to stick to my stick to my hard-earned, uh, the hard lessons that I've learned rating players that I've never seen them and just trying to rate them by stats. I mean, I think you can you can make some general takes on their goals and assists and um, things like that. You can make some general comments on their age. So this player, but, I, but I'm not going to, I can't say whether, whether this is a good signing or not or anything other anything about that player. I have no idea. And I'm just going to wait and see how he does and, and rate him on his performance and and, you know, Cody Cece was described when he came into me by someone as a vanilla player. And um, sometimes these vanilla players, as we saw from Cody Cece, can be uh, pretty damn tasty vanilla. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really get the job done. So I'm hoping, 
this is my hope that the Oilers have good pro scouts. They know what they're doing. And of all the, there's lots of guys they could have picked. A hundred guys, I bet, to give that contract to. Mm-hmm. Who would have been in the running for it and would, wouldn't have been crazy? Maybe, maybe 50. Um, maybe a hundred was too much. Maybe 50, though. And maybe three that would sign Edmonton. <laughs> I don't know about that, Bruce. I think that's actually changing. I'm, I am. Yeah. Talking. Okay. I, so I hope they got the right guy. I, I don't know. I do note a couple things. He is 29, which mm-hmm. isn't 32 or 33. Mm-hmm. So that's good. Like this kind of player is usually just so done. By the time they bring him in and he's 32 or 33, like Eric Belanger. I mean, Eric Belanger was a better player than Matthias Janmark. Um, but but he was a similar player in some ways. He was a center, like, but a, a finesse bottom line player. And by the time Belanger got here, he was just like he was useless. He couldn't play NHL hockey anymore at this level. And, don't, you know, all due respect to Belanger, who had a good NHL career. But when he got here, he couldn't play. So this player is, is younger than that. And yep. so that's encouraging. I, you know, I would like to have seen uh, him at 27, you know, si- signing this kind of same kind of player a bit younger, a bit, you know, because their wheels, they really do fall off. They tend to fall off the, the map at around 30, 31, 32. But it's just a one-year deal. Yep. It's less than a year in last year. So mm-hmm. in theory, it could be even seen as a as a bargain, bargain contract. Um, he's not much of a point scorer, but... He, his point scoring kind of slots in. He he got more points per 60 at even strength than did uh, Warren Fogle, who's earning 2.7 million. Now mm-hmm. Fogle hits. Uh, oh. He got more points per 60 than Ryan Nugent Hopkins. Uh, and 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 I'm and I don't think it's unfair to bring up Nugent Hopkins in this context anymore, because this isn't just one year of this with the Nugent. This is a few years that his even strength scoring's been off. So, but Nugent Hopkins, he he he's a power play specialist, very strong, and he's a great penalty killer at this point. So there's things things obviously to like about him, but um, he's just behind um, Derek Ryan and Kyler Yamamoto at points for sixty based on last year's play. Right. So he and interesting, he was right at the same level, almost exactly the same level as Connor Brown. Um, who the orders had looked at bringing in. Now, Connor Brown, from what I understand, was more of a PK. He was a P, true PK specialist. Yes. Played more PK minutes than anyone in the in the NHL for the last couple of years, I do believe. Yes. Last based three on years, what you, yeah. Based on what you, you dug that up. Yes. And so I don't know if Janmark is that. Um, <laughs> but so, yeah, the Grandland can... I, I think it's... a What I do like about him is this. When they brought in Turris, Turris was older, at least a year older, I think. But he was also, Kyle Turris was making the conversion from a top line, top six player to a checking player. Mm-hmm. And he, I don't think he ever psychologically was able to get his head around that and to define himself like that and do all of the little dirty jobs that a bottom line player has got to do. Like an Alex Chason does, for instance, without thinking. They just do it. They play defense like their life depends on it. And I don't, Turris never got that through his head and was never able to do it. Janmark, um, again, I don't know for sure, but he's what what kind of a player he is. But I'm, what I'm hoping to see is a player who knows defensively that he must be impeccable in terms of his effort, his positioning, his reading of the game, all of that kind of stuff, like Alex Chason was, frankly, um, in terms of his defensive play. And he'll bring that to the orders. And that's a significant thing. It's not a small thing. And if he can do that for one season and chip in mm-hmm. many points per 60 is Ryan Nugent Hopkins. I mean, his 
his point per 60 wasn't terrible last year. Jan Markets kind of places him at the the bottom end of a third line player, the top yep. end of a fourth line player. Mm-hmm. So that's not bad. That's okay. That's he's chipping in the odd goal. It's like 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 kind of like Fogel did last year at even strength. Like you know, although Fogel, according to our scoring chance numbers, was actually a, a better two way player than he, than his scoring numbers uh, indicated. He he actually was a, a fairly effective two way winger. Was Warren Fogel? So if if Jan Mark and Fogel are your third and fourth line left wingers, I guess. Yeah, they uh, they'd be battling for uh, jobs in the bottom six with each other. That's that's how, okay. how I lay it out for now, anyway. That's okay in terms of play. It's not okay in terms of salary with what Fogel made. He's got to bring more. But anyway, that's my thought on. It. I, I was okay with that. I and I, but that's I'm not. I'm not giving it a thumbs up or thumbs down because I can't. Yeah, well, I made a direct comparison between uh, him and Derek Ryan. Uh, I found just by coincidence they played exact same number of games in the NHL, 420. They both broke in in 2015, 16. Uh, but Ryan is six years older than is Jan Mark. Like he had, he got a really late start, and he was an effective player, still improving right into his 30s. Uh, but their career stats are very comparable to each other. And right now, they're also even their cap hits are not only comp- comparable, they're identical. One point two five million dollars each for uh, for next year, and you know they're not the same player, but they both have have um, you know a minute on power play, uh, more than that on penalty kill. Uh, they both started as centers. Uh, Ryan is a right hand stick and valuable in the face off dot, which is something Jan Mark is not. So they've got, um, uh, on the other hand, Janmark's a younger guy. I think he's a faster guy. My, my recollection of him as a player is, you know, wide speed and, tra- and trying to beat D-men one-on-one. I remember him doing that in the Dallas playoff run. And of course, in the bubble here in Edmonton, they they played 26 games. They tied the all-time NHL record for games in the playoff year. And every one of those 26 games was in Rogers' place. So he's going to be... Uh, uh, feeling fairly comfortable in the building, I would think, right from the get-go, for what that's worth. Yeah, so this signing has been greeted, I think, by... seems like people are okay with it, from what mm-hmm. I'm seeing. I don't see massive <laughs> consternation from anybody. Fire Holland? I haven't heard Fire Holland for at least a week now. Yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> well, it is... It's a miracle, Bruce. It's a small miracle. <laughs> um I can see people's frustration with Holland. I mean, when let's face yep. it, when they got down to L.A., Bruce, earlier this year uh, in the playoffs, lots of even the hardcore loyalists of Holland. I don't know if you went back and listened to our podcasts, what we would have been saying about Holland. But um, I don't know if Ken, if the Oilers had lost to L.A., I don't know if Ken Holland would still be the Oilers GM right now. So um, hmm. there is that. Uh, let's move on. Yesa Pudyuyarvi and Connor mm-hmm. Yamamoto are both filed for arbitration. Now, according to your dig into this, well, just what did you find in terms of how, how likely this is to get to arbitration? And do you think these two cases will defy that, defy the trend and get there? Yeah, the trend has been away, away, away from arbitration. Uh, and But filing for arbitration is a standard part of the process. And every year, 20-odd players seems like file for arbitration. Uh, arbitration uh they are players that are at least one year removed from their entry level contract have played at least a one bridge contract 
on top, as have both of the guys in question here, Pogliarvi and Yamamoto. Uh, JP's was a two-year bridge, Yamamoto's a one-year bridge, so now they're on the same timeline. <clears throat> they, too, are, have identical cap hits, uh, 1.175 million that they made last year, and they both outperformed that by some margin, in my opinion. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> less and less are, t- are teams and players uh, playing chicken all the way down to actually sit, meeting the arbitrator and going through the hearing process. And in the last two years of the 46 players who filed for arbitration, exactly one player, Tyler Bertuzzi, uh, went through the process and got awarded, uh, you know, was, was met with a ruling by the arbitrator and uh, he wound up of course, staying with Detroit. The other 45 guys all reached contract terms with their teams before they actually got to the arbitration hearing date, which is usually two or three or four weeks off from the arbitration filing date, which was yesterday, July 17th. So it'll be off in, in August sometime. And that leaves the GM some time to negotiate, in this case with both players. It also means that they are no longer subject to an offer sheet. Uh, they cannot get off sheeted by some other team now. They are Oilers' property, and when the arbitra- when they have the hearing, when the arbitrator rules, uh, the Oilers are forced to accept that figure, whatever it is, uh, unless in the very unlikely instance it's over 4.539 million dollars. I think is the threshold. Uh, don't ask me why it's a weird figure like that, but. If it's over that, the team has the option to walk away and to say, nope, we just don't want to pay that contract. But in this case, neither guy will individually make that amount. The trouble is the Oilers only have about that amount for both players combined. So something's got to give somewhere because I don't think they're going, going to get uh, get those guys in the $2 million range. And if they try to, then they'll go to arbitration and uh, you know, the pretty good chance the ruling will go against them. Well, the only way he gets that much money in arbitration as if the guy is reading Euler's Twitter and believes the all the people who are <laughs> absolutely convinced that that Pugliarvi's on ice stats are actually his real value as a player. I mean, th- there is a, a faction in Edmonton that is really super high on Pugliarvi because um, as, as they will quite, and this is a correct statement that they make, the team gets more shots and dangerous shots and mm-hmm. uh, on net when he's on the ice. Um, you know, he, he then he really seems to drive that kind of activity. Other players do better in terms of creating shots, at, or the whole team as a the whole, and some other and all the players that go along with that. When they're on the ice with Pulleyarvi, they get more shots on net, oh, and they do. get more uh, t- tough shots on net. And I think that so that's a fair comment about the guy. Now, the others will say, well, that only goes so far. Like you know, you mm-hmm. you have to have results, and and I think generally speaking, the arbitrators go by goals and assists. Uh, as the main indicators of a of a player's play, and Pulleyarvi's is okay. It's kind of like um, his points per sixty this past season, playing with McDavid quite a bit, was I was kind of I think. Um, let me just see, Bruce. Do you have that chart that I made where he ranked in the NHL? Yes, sir. Uh, he um, he's okay with that. Mm-hmm. In terms of his points per 60, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess he's kind of bottom second line, in terms mm-hmm. of points per 60. Uh, let me see if I can find it real quick. But he's not. He didn't turn. He didn't shoot. Uh, okay, here we go. 
118th he ranked. Oh, no, no, no. Excuse me. That's power play performance. Um, Did you put that chart on your story? I could find it there easily. Uh, I I did, but I left that column out. Okay. Sorry. Uh, My cousin, uh, distant, distant cousin, Math with uh, Mika Blake McCurdy. Uh, he just put out a very, an interesting long thread this morning about uh, players who are gifted playmakers. Uh, he used a volleyball term. He called them setters, the ones that set up the slam dunk kind of shots that had the you know the high high uh, end uh, playmaking skills. And yeah. he went through a long uh, a long thread of tweets and. Towards the very bottom of it, he specifically talked about Yesipul Yarvi, and what Mika said was part of why Yesipul Yarvi is so polarizing is that he's a phenomenal forechecker, but a poor finisher and a poor setter. Vision with the puck so much weaker than his anticipation without it. I got the puck from you again. Now what? So, and he so he say he doesn't. Not, Finishing plays, he's not making them sort of the deadly passes for tap-ins, but what he does, his forechecking uh, chops uh, are so first-rate that he creates loose pucks and and pops pucks free and creates opportunities that uh, especially talented line mates are going to convert into goals. So that and he says that's why he's so polarizing, and I think he's right because that, that is very much the divide between the really pro. Uh, yes, uh, uh, folk and the ones that just sort of look at his box cards say, well, he's playing with McDavid. He should have fire harder. He should be able to score 40 goals. Oh, no, wait a minute. That was Glenn Sather said that. But anyway, he, uh, uh, <clears throat> but the fact that, um, you know, to me, the, the, the sort of the overriding stat that I look at is, is how bad the Oilers outscore the other team when he's on the ice. And I'm talking about real goals, not expected goals or shots or Corsi or any of that stuff, real goals. Uh, when Yessa played with McDavid this year, the Oilers outscored the other guys 21 to 4. Well, Bruce, here's the problem with my, your cousin's numbers, mm-hmm. according to our work, because I just did a real quick, as, as we were talking, I just did a real quick look at this. So mm-hmm. what we measure is passes that directly lead to grade A shots, passes mm-hmm. that are absolutely integral to the grade A shot coming about. So these are the most important passes in any hockey game. And I think that's what your cousin's trying to get at. Like what are, like in, if you look at all the passes, what are the ones that really make a difference? And and the ones that really make a difference are the ones that set up grade A shots. So we actually did that this year in our work. And um, it doesn't correlate with what Mika Blake McCurdy found at all actually. What we see is so for the for the wingers, uh Hy- Hyman made 60 at even strength. Hyman made 63 passes at even strength, leading to a grade A shot. Pugliarvi made 61. Yamamoto made 50. Mm-hmm. Ryan Nugent Hopkins made 43. Ryan Nugent Hopkins, the great passer, made 43. Um, Kane in uh, Patrick uh, Evander Kane made 28. Mm-hmm. Now Kane played. Kane made. Uh, he played 43 he played seven, games and and. Um, JP played 65. 716 Yamamoto minutes. played 81. Yeah, so Kane in 716 even strength minutes made 28 such passes. Pugliarvi in 959 
about 240 minutes more. He made 61. So it's not even close. Pugliarvi was setting up players for grade A shots at a far higher rate than Evander Kane was when he was out there. Um, and, and this is what it... So our numbers, what we found this year from careful observation of Pugliarvi was that he, he did a lot to help create grade A shots and get his own grade A shots. And and um, so if, if the arbitrator's going by our numbers, he'd be inclined mm-hmm. to give Yesa Pugliarvi quite a handsome contract, I'm going to suggest. Like, and, and, yep. and I think, you know, I, I think our numbers personally, other people can think what they want, but I, I, we're doing, I'm doing this work for a reason. I think that this gives us some insight into what's going on in the ice. And, um, I, uh, I, I hope that the arbitrators aren't looking at our numbers. <laughs> so it's because I want Poliarvi to stay. And I think the only way he stays, Bruce, is if, um, I think this is going to go to arbitration. I don't mm-hmm. think Yamamoto's gonna. Did I say Yamamoto had he had 50 in in 1,200 minutes? Just 50 of these passes in 1,200 minutes. So he's playing about um, 250 minutes more than Pugliarvi. He's got 11 less passes, setting up grade A shots. I think Yamamoto's gonna end up in um, settling at a reasonable amount. And, but I think Pugliarvi will go to arbitration just because this they can't seem to agree on anything. Mm-hmm. And um, this would be an indication of that. And then after there is a number set, what we're hearing is the Oilers have not been able to trade this player because teams are worried that they're gonna, there's going to be an outsized arbitration number. Mm-hmm. After a number is set with, with JP, um, maybe we'll see a trade then uh, for the player heading out of town. But maybe if the number is too high, the Oilers will not be able to trade him and will have to keep him. So if you had to guess... Here's a hard one for you, Bruce. If you had to guess what you think the, let's say they just give a one-year contract, mm-hmm. keep it easy in that regard. They, the arbitrator, it's a, so the Oilers and, and Pugliarvi are both asking just for one year for the player. And the arbitrator's picking one. What do you think the number will be that he, w- he will get uh, on that one-year contract? With the Oilers, let's say the Oilers get about 2.2 and Pugliarvi at 3.3. Mm-hmm. What would you? What do you think the arbitrator? My understanding is the arbitrator. If it goes to fully to the arbitrator, he has to pick one of them. He doesn't find Correct. middle ground. Correct. And he picks one of them, and then whichever side didn't file for arbitration, which is the Oilers, because the player file filed in both cases here, uh, has the option to make it one year or two years if they like to figure. Oh, cool. They can go for a second year. So that's a, one of the risks that the player is taking in in uh, going that route, and it's probably one of the reasons I always like to settle. So something uh, with a two in it or something starting with the three, that'll be the two different well, camps. Yeah, the story I've heard from uh, one uh, uh, one person that uh, uh, that uh, has some connection says that there was a two-year offer on the table at $3 million, but the talks petered out and that, uh, that um, uh, yes, I might be looking for more than that now. On the other hand, you know, he actually had a poorer finish to the season than he did start to it, so... Who knows what, what that's done to his value down the stretch? But it would be uh, what the arbitrator would do. I think uh, I think three is probably pretty close. Something uh, with a, starting with a three, that is what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, right, he, right he, there. You know, I didn't I didn't when talking about Pugliarvi's season. I was giving his whole season numbers. Mm-hmm. So this is why I'm generally bullish on the player. Mm-hmm. He really crashed in the playoffs. Like he was he was mediocre in the playoffs. He had mm-hmm. a really rough ride. And um, lost his confidence for whatever reason. Um, injuries, sickness, uh, we don't know. 
So um, he just wasn't himself, wasn't close to himself. And I think part of the reason I want him to stay is because I do think that that recency bias um, is part of the reason that they, they might not want him. Although, on the other hand, they've had this player in the organization for years now. They know him. He knows them. And if the orders are... If the orders are this serious about trading him, I, I for Pulleyarvi's sake, I hope he does get traded. At this point, I mean, for the players' sake, I think he, I think he wants to go, and um, so, and I'd hate to see him go. I think he could help the team, but um, yep. on the other hand, if people don't want to be in a place, you got to move them. Like I don't think there's. Well, I've got. I don't to think hear, it makes sense. I've to, yet to hear that from a reliable source that he's flat out asked for a trade. And when they asked Holland about it, he said that he hadn't. So, Well, Spectre said he talked to Lado and Lado mm-hmm. said that, I don't know if he asked for a trade. Mm-hmm. It's too strong a way of, Lado was on orders now, so or Spectre was on orders now when he said, and he, and he seemed to indicate that Lado would prefer that the player be moved. So it's, I think that's that might be the language which is which is correct, as opposed to asking for a trade. So, anyway, Bruce, it looks like I, I think he will be traded, and after the arbitration comes through, um, and and God, there's some teams apparently put a lot of weight in these on ice numbers. So, yeah. um, we'll see if if they do. There should be a. They, I, I've always contended if they re, if there are some teams that really and value this stuff. If they have money, like New Jersey, they've got Tyler Dello, who was the you know the king of Corsi. They've got this guy. If he really believes in it and he's got any clout there, you'd think they go after Pulleyarvi, right? So um, we'll see. The thing happens. about Moneyball though, or Money Puck, is that they're they're looking for they're looking for things that aren't necessarily valued elsewhere that they value. And they want to get it cheap. That's that's the big part of it. They they were looking for the guys with the big on base percentage who had some other flaw that that meant that he could be gotten at a bargain price. So they don't necessarily want to pay through the nose for the skill that they're looking for. They want to be able to find it uh, at uh, uh, at a value price. So I don't find that argument compelling. Okay. It's because every team is looking for a bargain. Mm-hmm. Every team's up against the cap. They're looking for, they're fundamentally, yeah, they're looking for bargains. Of course they are. But they're fundamentally, said it himself, man. They're, they're fundamentally <laughs> looking for players who can win, who can help you win hockey games, who can yep. help the GM keep his job, who yes. can help the coach and ha- can help Tyler Dello mm-hmm. keep his job, right? Like, this is what they're looking for. A player mm-hmm. who can come in. Of course, they don't want to overpay. Nobody wants to overpay. They, of course, they want a bargain. Everybody wants, they need, they want players who can win. If they have, if they're convinced there's a there's a market for Pulleyarvi. This isn't Moneyball. This is the real world. They need to keep their jobs. If they can get him at a decent salary, there's going to be a market for this guy. So either either they don't either they don't believe either these guys don't have that much clout. The 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 analytics guys, which is possible within the organization, they're hired. It's possible they don't get listened to, or it's also possible that Pulleyarvi has been asking for too much money, and that's been the major holdup in a trade. You know, and there's teams just don't want to pay what he what he thinks he's worth. So once he's once the market is set with a new contract, then we'll see if if other teams value him enough at that the price that is set to keep him or not. Sounds like and maybe maybe it's not maybe I'm too pessimistic about him at Edmonton. Is there a chance that he could still fit in here, do you think? Yep. You do? I do. Yeah, so do I. I do. Yeah. 
yeah, I think he's got the game and he's got, uh, uh, but the path maybe through time on the third line and that may be where they have the, uh, the disconnect. Because uh, I, I think it's still quite feasible he'll work his way up the lineup because of his, uh, you know, he, he's, uh, yeah, he's got a lot of positives in there too. But uh, as you say, recency bias and, and what people, what we saw and what people think they saw in the playoffs uh, is that he played poorly. In fact, in the playoffs, he was on for eight goals, four eight goals against sawed off, which you expect more, fair. Uh, but it doesn't exactly stink. And that He's, was playing a lot on, the, it was playing a lot on the third line because uh, Drysaddle got moved up to the McDavid line on right wing uh, in the LA series, and there he remained. I guess my question for the orders is this, like in, in all seriousness, who can you get that's better at the same price? Who can mm-hmm. you get that's better at the same price? Mm-hmm. And if they have an answer for that and they can get that player, they move them out. Um, but if like if he's not better than Pugliarvi is right now, based on what we saw last year, what are you doing? Like what's going mm-hmm. on here? So anyway, that's I just I hope it all works out, but I, I'm pessimistic and I do get the sense that Pugliarvi may want out, but uh, I, I I maybe I'm wrong and incorrect about that. All right, uh, Bruce Yamamoto. On the other hand, I think you're right. He'll settle. Um, yeah, and. Uh, uh, they've got a little more highway with him, like they got four four more years before he's UFA. So I think the the, the window is pretty wide open for a two year bridge, and it's just a matter of finding the appropriate price. And he apparently was unhappy with the low ball contract extension he got last year without any uh, you know without any arb rights or real negotiating power. So he's probably going to dig his heels in a little bit, but. Uh, I still expect that that'll get resolved well before any hearing date. I should add about Mika Blake McCurdy's work. When I read his mm-hmm. his tweet thread today and said, like, mm-hmm. he, what he said when he made the claim that Pugliarvi is a weak passer of the puck, mm-hmm. like, in terms of high-level skill, I agreed with that. Like, before mm-hmm. looking at our own numbers and our own work, yep. that kind of, it didn't, it, it passed the smell test for me. And I and I just think that shows how, to me, that shows how strong the recency bias is with Yessa Pugliarvi. That shows that I, my own view of this player has been deeply impacted by what I saw in his last month when he couldn't make a pass, when he was just constantly shooting it around the boards to mm-hmm. try to give it away so Connor McDavid would get it because he wasn't trying to take the puck to the net himself and make a play. So I, I think that this recency bias really is a rot in terms of our thinking process right. about a player, and, and especially with a young guy like this who's going to have ups and downs. We know that. We're all going, we're all rating him on this strong, strong negative impression from the playoffs. And um, it's a mistake. Yep. And I, I I don't, it just makes me all the more thinking like, you know, let's, let's have a more broad and nuanced view of this player. Let's look at his whole body of work over the last year and rate him on that rather than what happened in, in one month in, um, in May. Uh, when he didn't play his best hockey. Yep. Well, I mean, you hear out there, we need a big winger who's hard on the puck. Let's trade six foot four, yes, Paul Yarby, who, you know, it just it doesn't make sense. And you know, and I'm, I'm reading from some people that said, you know, he's playing scared out there. I mean, I'm sorry, I do not see that even a tiny little bit. 
Uh, I see a guy that's lost his confidence. Yes, that's a whole lot different from playing scared. I don't see a guy that's scared to stick his nose in where the puck is. Uh, anyway, it's... Uh, I didn't see uh, he he's a he's yeah. a unicorn and it's very hard to, to find comparables for this player or to, to judge him because he you know he's one of these guys that doesn't sort of fit the normal models and can you find value in that player I think the value is there whether he needs a second opinion as Craig McTavish famously said uh, to f- fully find the right you know his own wheelhouse. Uh, time will tell, but it, uh, that time may well be rapidly running out here in Edmonton, unfortunately. I wish Holland had said, um, at the end of the year, Woodcroft had made his, his statement, like um, people asked him about Pugliarvi, and he said, like, I haven't lost confidence in the guy, mm-hmm. and his teammates haven't lost confidence in the guy. And, you know, he was just very positive about the player. Mm-hmm. And I wish Holland had been, I keep, I keep going back to this because I don't think Holland handled that right. I just wish he had said something like, instead of saying, I got to sort out Jesse, you know, I got to sort out this situation. I just wish he said, it said, you know what, there's a, he could have said this. There's a tough negotiation ahead with this player. Um, we're pretty far apart right now. And in the end, um, this may go to arbitration. And it's very rarely that things happen that this happens in the NHL where the two sides are so far apart. But this is where we are right now with this player. So we're just figuring it out and leave it at that. You know, I just he could have indicated that there's some distance between the two camps in terms of pay. But I just I didn't. I don't know if that would have been any better. Um, but um, if if that's the issue, because because we are going to get resolution on a contract that way, yes. like they did always have that out. They didn't have to agree. Um, on a deal, someone else would would solve it for them essentially. So if Holland could have kicked, had that thought in his mind the whole time that, that there is a solution, but it seems like the thought in his mind the whole time. And this was after he talked to Yesapuliarvi in a year in interview, um, but before he had talked to the rest of his teammates, as far as I'm, I'm I'm I think, and he had just had it in his head that they were going to s- split ways there. It seemed like based on that conversation with Puliarvi and Puliarvi's play. And everything that went about went on there. Anyway, enough about that. God, we've been talking about that for how long, Bruce? Ken Holland's summer. Mm-hmm. Ken Holland's, which includes yes, the Pulley We're going to give him a grade, Bruce. So he signed Evander Kane, four-year deal at five point one million. He signed Brett Kulak, four-year deal at two point seven five. Was it? Yes. He signed Jack Campbell, five years at five million. Mm-hmm. And he's and he's now signed Matthias Janmark one year at one point two million. What grade, Bruce McCurdy, would you give Ken Holland for the summer and why? Are we one to tening it or are we a to effing it? Let's uh, let's one to ten it. Let's use the cult of hockey grading okay. system. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll give I'll give him a strong seven for sure. He's had a good summer so far. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, he made some key signings at, at uh, uh, prices a little lower than people expected. He was able to retain both Kane and Kulak. I think, you know, Campbell, he play, paid full dollar for. And honestly, David, I don't think we know what we've got in Jack Campbell yet. Like, to, who knows? There may come a day where we're ruining the day that uh, of course. he signed here. Uh, of course, but, yeah. Uh, um, 
you know, he looks he looks pretty good, and he was clearly one of the best goalies on the market. And the Oilers actually went out and got one of those. So uh, I think you have to give positive marks for that. And uh, I think it's premature to sort of give him a negative grade for uh, the you know the RFAs. He had more time to deal with those guys. He had to deal with the UFAs first, and he did. So I think he's had mostly had his uh, priorities in the right order. And now the next order of business is. Ryan McLeod, Kylie Yamamoto, Yesipoliari, Ty Benson, for that matter, the uh, four guys out there who have, uh, uh, you know, they're on the roster in one sense, but they don't have an actual contract yet. So that's the next order of business. But to this point, yeah, for sure, he's a, he's a solid seven. I think that's a fair mark. I'm gonna I'm gonna be I'm gonna give him an eight. Okay. Uh, for great, that's a great. Yeah. He's had a great off season. Okay. So of the four major moves. Mm-hmm. I rate the Jack Campbell signing a six out of ten, okay. um, because so that's above average, and mm-hmm. I and it could work out, but it's a lot of money for a long time for a free agent. He's thirty now. Goalies between the ages of thirty and thirty-five, they they can hang in there and they can win you a cup for sure. Um, they're kind of they're different beasts, aren't they? You just don't know. Yeah. Goalies can also fall off at that age. Their 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 playing can fall off. He, Jack Campbell played with a broken rib apparently at one point last year. Elliot Friedman was saying several he's, games, and he's still well for a lot of like I don't know how quickly those heal, and it's it's different, right? So broken like you heal faster if you're not playing goal in the National Hockey League. One set of broken ribs is different than another, so we don't know how bad the pain was or anything like that. So, anyways, that's oh. but that sounded to me like holy moly, yeah. that's pretty good. I I I. I I'm glad they got. I'm. I, I'm. I, so I give a thumbs up to that contract. Mm-hmm. I will say that. Um, yep. uh, I'm not going to complain about it. They needed a goalie. They needed a starter goalie. Their Stanley Cup window is now. The moment is now, mm-hmm. and they needed a goalie. And could be Stuart Skinner still. They got two good bets though right now. Stuart Skinner has been a strong AHL goalie two years in a row. He's ready to pop in the NHL. They've got Jack Campbell, who's been popping the last three or four years. He's been a pretty good goalie, kind of up and down, apparently, in mm-hmm. Toronto. But a lot of that is injury. So if they have a good backup in Skinner, which Toronto didn't have last year, you know, they didn't trust the backup, I don't think, and um, in Mrazek. And right. um, so I like that. It's, it's, But I am worried about the term and the, the amount of money. Could turn out to be like if Jack Campbell steps up and plays his best hockey of his life, like if he's between 9.15 and 9.20 save percentage in the next five years consistently, this could turn out to be like a Cody Cece deal, which is like a total steal. Like they're, like Ken, Ken Holland, he saved $3 million a year on the cap from Cody Cece last year, and we'll see what happens going forward. Like that's how Cody Cece played like a top pairing D-man, and he was pa- played like a second pairing guy. So maybe Jack Campbell's going to play like a $7 million goalie Um in years to come or maybe or not or or he'll be terrible we don't know but so i'm going to give that a six i give the kulak signing an eight mm-hmm. um he was he listen the market was pretty tight we could see which defensemen were available on the left side and we could see how much these other guys got paid like um the, the ben Schrott, who is 31 right mm-hmm. so this is the this is what people forget when they compare the Sherratt signing to the Kulak signing is Ben Sherrod, whatever he was in the last four years, he's heading into four years where you can expect seasonal decline from him as a defenseman. He's heading out of his prime. Now he might be still be okay, 
but they signed him for $4.75 million a year for four years. That is a, and Kulak, you know, $2 million a year less. And he's 28. He's Mm -hmm. had, he's in his prime and he's got what you could expect is three or four more years of primetime hockey from him. This just this puts those two contracts to me on such a on profoundly different footing. Now, anyone, any player, any age can get injured, so you never know what's going to happen. But if when you're playing the odds and the probabilities, and you're just comparing these two players, I mean the the Kulak, it was a great contract. Whereas the Sherratt contract, I'm going to give like a a four or two, or um, or even a three. I, I don't see that as a good risk at all. And then the good Branson contract, he's 30. Again, he might have a, he's kind of a slow defenseman and he's a kind of a plodding guy anyway. Mm-hmm. And four years at $4 million, that's also like a three or a four, ter- three out of 10 in terms of a risk when you risk, you know, figure out everything. You know, why don't they just, I guess that Zadorov wanted to stay in Calgary. I mean, he got two years at 3.75. I would have been actually okay with Zadorov. I, I, I like I liked him. Um, as a player, and he's he's still in his prime and is going to stick through that. So Calgary did okay there. But um, I like this contract, Bruce. Kulak got better and better the longer he was with the Oilers. He passes the puck really well, but his his skating is absolutely exceptional. His positional play is strong. He's a smart defender. He and Tyson Berry played together. It's They, they played as well as you could hope for a kind of a bottom pairing second pairing slash third pairing d to play in the playoffs like they were just they were fantastic they really got the job done and uh, barry was involved in more big plays than kulak but kulak uh played very well they, i wouldn't be surprised to see that partnership ag- together again but that would mean playing well. philip broberry with um evan bouchard mm-hmm. we'll see what happens but it, I, I so i'm going to give that one an eight and the Evander Kane signing first, I'm going to give a 10 out of 10. Wow. That, I think, was arguably the best signing of the right. summer. I hope I'm right, too. Now, you can make the same argument about uh, Evander Kane as you make about Sherratt, that he's a power forward, big, tough power forward, but he's he's 30. He's going to be 31 this season. He, in a, he's 31 in a week or two. So he, you'd expect him to decline as a player in these next years. We've seen players, Adner Ladd, other power forwards, it's just on and on. Um, who's the dude from Buffalo um, that signed that big contract? Lou Cheech is another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, they, they, they just fall off the face of the Kyle earth. Kyle Ocposo. Kyle Ocposo. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a long list. It's a long oh, yeah. list. Andrew Ladd. Yeah. It's a long, it is a long list. James Neal is on that list. Dick Clarkson, James oh. Neal. Yeah, but there's, there are other guys, Jerome Aginla, um, um, Bill Guerin, uh, who who keep playing well. I, I think from what I saw of Kane in the playoffs, he looked, he looked fast enough, and I think he's going to stay fast enough. He's obviously an extremely well-conditioned athlete. He, uh, whatever else you want to say about the guy, he's, he, he's, he looks like he's taking care of his body. Now, a lot's going to depend on injury, like it does with all of these players. But he, Bruce, he, he was he was exceptional in the playoffs. So again, here's recency bias kicking in a little bit. Although he was exceptional the entire time he was with the Oilers, so I'll give him that as well. But he really was like the physical force, the uh, finesse with the puck, the goal scoring. 
that we saw in tight, the hands that we saw in tight. I guess such a contrast to Yesapuli Yarvi in terms of finishing off plays in tight around the net when McDavid set him up. So there is that, that I could be again guilty of strong recency bias here, but those were the freaking Stanley Cup playoffs. That is when players need to come to play. That is something that you you need to pay for. And I think that Kane, I do believe Kane can replicate that in the playoffs for a couple years at least. And this, you know, if he had signed a five-year deal at $7 million with another team, I would I would have thought, oh yeah, that's the market. That's that's fair recompense for Evander Kane. I, don't, I would have been surprised if he had gotten six or seven years, I would have thought, oh, wow, that's a... That's a gross, you know, someone's really blown their brains out there. Like, that's not a very good idea. But if he had gotten five years at $7 million, um, I wouldn't have been surprised. And I would have thought, oh, that's that's really pushing it. I, I'm glad the Oilers didn't. I would have been glad the Oilers didn't do that. But I don't think it would have been crazy because he's, he's a rare player in the NHL right now. Team like Toronto, at the end of the season... They were wondering, you know, the, all the people on the Toronto, in the Toronto media, what did this team need? Oh, we needed a big, tough four with some skill. Well, you could have had one in January if you had had the guts to go sign to Vander Kane, maybe. You might have had him, and you didn't. So you're paying the price right now. And the Oilers did. And through Ken Holland's, I think, very skilled handling of this player, handling of the negotiations, sensitivity towards his situation in San Jose, and I think working with Kane, on that situation. I think one of the reasons the Oilers let Kane go to the market is because Kane, for his arbitration, not just for this contract, but for arbitration, needed needed to show that he's trying to mitigate losses against that contract. And that certainly shows that to any arbitrator. You can't say Evander Kane was just going to sit on that San Jose contract and try to get awarded it all in a, in a hearing. He was going out and taking care of himself and making up for whatever lost income he suffered. And Holland allowed that. Now they, you know, Kane can go and say, that I, I found my market value and this is what it was. And this is the difference in the contracts. And he has a better argument now in arbitration. And I think Ken Holland helped facilitate that um, with what he did. So I just, I think it's a 10 out of 10, that signing. It was, it's, it, and it could be critical, absolutely critical in the owners winning a Stanley Cup. And I, and because I'm giving it such a high mark, I expect that to be, I expect Evander Kane to be a critical player in a Stanley Cup run that succeeds. So that's why I give it the highest of all marks. All right. Well, again, <clears throat> time will tell on how long. Uh, Kane has a history of having a honeymoon period with the team, followed by a marriage period, I guess. <laughs> um, we'll see if uh, it feels different in Edmonton, and maybe that's just because we're seeing it from a totally different perspective. feels like he's clicked here. The team likes him, uh, and <clears throat> they, they seem to be quite quite uh, on on board with that. Uh, um, and Holland went out of his way at his presser to say they asked the players out in the exit interview, and it's a very good question to ask, and he said they were universally... Uh, uh, positive, and I just don't see Ken Holland as being the sort who would make that up. He would either say nothing, or he would be talking from what they said. Uh, here, here's an interesting thing. I was thinking of this Ben Chirot versus uh, Brett Kulak uh, <clears throat> comparison. You know, they both came in into the league as sort of third pairing guys. They both played their first full season at age 24, uh, so it took them a while to make it, and 
at that age, Kulak was playing 13 minutes, uh, 17, 16, 17, the next four years. So all, all this kind of third pairing minutes, 17 minutes. And look at Ben Sherratt, who made it in his, uh, basically his third year in Winnipeg that he became a 70-game player. And he was playing 14 minutes, 15, 15, 18. And only at age 28, when he moved on from Winnipeg, did he become a 22, 23-minute top four player. And he's only done it for three years. Well, guess what? He's three years older than Brett Kulak is. And Kulak's just entering that phase of his career, potentially, where he's you know figuring it out and sort of moving up to, to full potential. And the fact is that the Oilers are paying Kulak for those years in the future. And it may be that Chirot's getting paid for the years that he's just had as a 28, 29, 30-year-old, but now he's 31, and how long will he be able to maintain at that level? So just, you know, their their careers in terms of their usage, uh, ice time and so forth, quite similar, other than Sherratt made the big step at age 28 into a, a top four NHL defenseman. So can Kulak do that? I mean, I have my doubts, but on the other hand, uh, uh, I'm convinced that he's going to be able to carry uh it's, you know, carry the load on the third pairing as a regular player on the team and be worth uh, the contract risk even in that position. I, I do think that he has some pretty big skates to fill in Duncan Keith. And, and I know Duncan Keith wasn't the player that he wasn't the Hall of Fame player that he was in Chicago and Edmonton, but he was really strong moving the puck. You know, my, my the top image that I have of Duncan Keith, and, and it's because he did this in the last six months of the season, was him getting the puck and firing off a great pass. He really did well with the puck, and that can't be underestimated. You know, there's a debate right now, Bruce, about uh, I'm seeing online today about do the Oilers need some big, tough physical defensemen like Colorado has? They had the Manson and the two Johnsons, right? And in the in the bottom pairings, they had these guys, but I don't think Colorado's defense honestly was defined by those guys. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm underestimating them. Colorado's defense and what set the Avs apart from other teams wasn't having big, tough, big guys in the bottom pairings. It was having absolutely spectacular, just out of this world, puck moving from their top three guys, you know, uh, from their top players on defense, from mm-hmm. from Taves, Byram, and the otherworldly Kale McCarr. That's what that's what that that's Colorado's defense. Yeah, that's what makes this team uh, the mountain. The Oilers have got to climb. You know, the, the that's the Edmonton's Everest is the Colorado Avalanche. And just the very, you know, the the hardest part of that climb is dealing with those three puck-moving defensemen and Sam Girard, who may, may yes. or may not stick with the team. The This is where the Oilers have got to, to me, this has got to be the focus of Ken Holland is thinking, mm-hmm. I've got to get superlative puck-moving from my defensive team. And maybe mm-hmm. I'm going to have to sacrifice a little grit um, because I don't, we don't have Kale McCarr and we're not getting him. Right. And we don't have even Bo and Byram, and we right. don't have Devon Taves, and we are not getting those players. Not but anymore. We, we're going to have to make up for that with six guys mm-hmm. who can all really, really move the puck mm-hmm. and play fundamentally. You got to play fundamentally sound defense. I'm not saying you don't, and you have to play tough defense. You do. Mm-hmm. But for the Oilers to beat the Avs, they've got to have six defensemen who can really, really pass and um, to stay in that game. 
Otherwise, they'll just get picked apart like they were so so often in the playoff games against the Avs this year. They were the Oilers were picked apart on the forecheck to the point where, in the end, I, and I think if you look at the game, Jay Woodcroft changed his strategy and started to trap the whole game. And and because you you go in on the forecheck and bam, they're by you and they're yeah. up the ice on an odd man rush. That was the story of the Oilers against the Avs is forecheck, bam, they're by you and they got a, they're they're away to the races. So to counteract that, I think, I mean, you could try to do it. You could try to be the rock crushing the scissors. You're going to need a mighty big rock. And I don't see the Oilers. I don't see this Oilers team built that way to beat the Avs that way. I think they're going to have to go scissors versus scissors. And I think they need to really focus on getting the demon who can move the puck. So Kulak steps up and he's got to, oh. he's got to do that now. Mm-hmm. He's got to, oh. Duncan Keith really did it. He he made those passes. Kulak's passing is going to be essential, and I saw him as a as a good. I would say like like a a six or a seven, NHL defenseman when it comes to passing the puck. Probably a six. He's going to have to be a seven. Like a like he's going to have to go from above mean, out of good, ten. Out of ten. Not not like a number seven defenseman. Yeah, that's right. Right. Excuse okay. me. Confused. I was confusing uh, to people there. Millions. But, David, millions of people were confused <laughs> by my last statement. I apologize to millions. So he's got to be a seven, Bruce, out of ten, and when it comes to mm-hmm. passing the puck, like right. he's a seven or he's a he's an eight mm-hmm. when it comes to skating, and mm-hmm. I think he's like a six or a seven in terms of def- defensive uh, positioning. But it's that passing that they need him to do, and it's Bouchard. Bouchard is a seven or an eight when it comes to passing. He's got to be an eight. Um, who do we got? Uh, uh, Tyson Berry is a, is a seven or an eight. Like that's why you have well, to. Well, he's kind of traded though. Everybody's agreed that uh, he's a luxury that Oilers can't afford and needs to be traded. Well, I, I, salary. I was saying that before. A lot, they, of, people, a lot of people are saying that. I, I was saying it. I'm not saying it anymore though, because yeah. you lose Duncan Keith. Like you lose Duncan Keith. You lose a, a, a passer who is a seven or an eight. Right now, at age 30, 38 or 39, whatever Keith was, old man Keith, he was a seven or an eight when it came to puck moving. He was he was good. And that's gone. So right. you've got you've to find someone who can... Now, what about Philip Broberg? Can he... What's he going to be passing the puck? Because he's kind of... He's kind of... He's kind of... <laughs> we Well, we've seen him. Oh. And, and we he's like nurse, right? He's good at transporting the puck. He's really super mobile. Mm-hmm. And um, he's fast, but how is that? How is that part of his game going to snap? And is he going to get that together? So that's a huge unknown heading into the season. And uh, Nima Linen, I mean, come on, like, he's not a good passer. Um, he so if they're going to use him, and they might need to use him, right? You do need that tough defenseman. I'm not saying it's you don't need that kind of player ever, but they've got to be able to move the puck. So he's going to have to. He might have to spend another year in the HL before he's ready for the age for for what the Oilers are going to need to to right. ca- climb Mount Avalanche. Mm-hmm. The avalanche is coming down at you the whole time. They need. I don't think. I don't think they need big tough guys. I think they need it, as their focus. I think they need players who can really pass that puck on defense, and they've got some, but they might have to trade for another. John Klingberry. Klingberg, Samuel Girard. That's what Samuel Girard can't afford Tyson Berry at four point five million, but we can afford to spend assets to get Samuel Girard at five million. Go well, figure. I think you, I don't think 
It shouldn't take a lot of assets to get Samuel Girard. Well, they, yeah, need to, they, they need to move a contract. Yeah. yeah, for the same rationale that some are saying move on from Barry. And to be fair, the rationale is sound. There's not much cap space, and there's not much fat on the roster anymore, David. Right? Uh, Duncan Keith, uh, uh, regardless of what we think we of his play, I think we can agree his cap hit was, was pretty extreme for a guy playing the minutes yes. that he paid. Yeah. Uh, so that contract is gone. The Zach Casting contract is gone with non-retained. Uh, the, you know, Kyle Turris and uh, Josh Archibald, um, Chris Russell even, uh, those contracts are gone. Uh, that were, you know, sort of double the NHL minimum. They can be replaced with guys a lot closer to the minimum. Uh, and there's just not a lot of, uh, of fat there. Like one of the things that happens that if they lose an arbitration case, the window opens for a second buyout opportunity for teams that go to arbitration. And I looked at that and I'm going, well, who the hell would they buy out, right? I mean, Cassian really was the only candidate here this year. They've, you know, in the past, they bought out Sekra, they bought out Neil, they bought out, you know, Eric Griva for Pete's sake. They bought out a few guys, but they, uh, um, uh, they don't even, like, one thing Holland has done, in my opinion, is he's reorganized the the payroll that it's there's not sort of lower tier play, players that are getting getting big money. I mean, he, he inherited the, the McDavid and the Dry Saddle contract, so you know, no no credit except for really Fogel for that. But uh, well, and Fogel is sort of on the cusp between yeah, you know, two point seven five million. Uh, to me, that's an overpay, but. Uh, uh, not necessarily a gigantic one, but he's, you know, he's one of the guys and Barry is the other guy that really they can look at and say, well, we could probably move that contract and maybe at least, you know, not have to eat some of it or take a big heavy contract coming back the other way because that doesn't accomplish anything. And maybe that's the uh, uh, the way forward is to move one of those guys to make the calf space, but they're not trimming fat anymore, I guess is my point. They're 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 going to have to move on from a pretty good hockey player just to tr- try and uh, deal with the the crunch of the uh, salary cap situation. Yeah, I thought Barry would be moved because I felt he had more value uh, to another NHL team than he had in Edmonton because of Bouchard's development, and, mm-hmm. and I think that's still true. I think that's a fact. Um, mm-hmm. But he's still a, he was Tyson Barry played the hockey of his life in the playoffs. And was involved in some big goals. And um, I think one of the reasons that his market, that, that he didn't get traded, other than the Keith thing, was it just it was a curious time in the NHL market. Sometimes mm-hmm. a team's trying to move a player, and there's a bunch of similar players out there, the teams that who really have a need for that player, it's met, they can meet it in free agency. So we saw Justin Schultz, Tony D'Angelo, and John Klingberry. Um you know, I don't know, oh. is Klingberry a right D? But Schultz yes. and D'Angelo are, and so is, so, yeah. you're, so is Klingberry. So mm-hmm. what we see is, um, you know, teams could fill their need. They didn't need to trade for Tyson Berry because they could get Schultz. Now, Schultz signed for two-year deal, $3 million each. D'Angelo, who's probably a better player than Berry, I'm guessing. At least better offensively, maybe a bit better offensively. Uh, two years at five million, so they're right in line. Like you know, right. Schultz is a little less, uh, lesser mm-hmm. player than Tyson Berry, I think. Um, so there was ways they could get get that player without trading for Tyson Berry, and that probably and decreased they, the market for him. 
He's also, gosh, 32 years old now, Justin Schultz. Wow. Time <laughs> flies, Bruce. Yeah, it sure does. So anyway, I mean, one of the one of the things that uh, worked for the Oilers last year, and we talked about it during the year, was that their defensemen were doing a much better job as a collective at moving the puck. Yes. And so they've lost one player out of that group, and if they decide to move on from Tyson Berry, that'll be a second one, not counting Chris Russell, who to me was the number seven last year, and who you would never confuse with a puck mover anyway. Uh, but uh, the, the general group, like the second and third pairing of uh, Bouchard and Keith and uh, Barry and Kulak, I mean, those are all guys that can move the puck. So, yeah, I mean, they're not great yeah. defenders, probably, but uh, 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 maybe not even any of them are great defenders, but they were all able to, to uh, uh, effectively move the puck. And that was uh, uh, once once they stopped having to face a huge amount of uh, top opposition players, which is uh, the big fix that uh, that Jay Woodcroft and uh, Dave Manson brought in was how they how they matched up. Uh, and they gave CC and Nurse, especially Nurse, loaded them up with the top competition. And then those other lower two pairings, they ate it up, and they were all outscorers by a significant margin. That worked well. So they, they will be reluctant to, to change that formula, I think. Yeah, when you think about it, like these, the Stanley Cup window, which is now, their defense is likely to be Nurse CC, um, Kulak, Barry, and um, Broberry, and Bouchard. Mm-hmm. So these are all players who can, you know, hopefully pass the puck really well, move the puck well, and we'll get better. We'll get better. Well, and the, the other thing I like is because you have so many players in that window of, you know, 27 to 31, um, 32 in there. Mm-hmm. These players should be should be capable of making sound defensive decisions and playing strong defensive hockey, even if they're not known for that. So what we what we saw from Kulak and Barry was two players who weren't known for strong defensive play, but in the playoffs provided it. They were really mm-hmm. they were sound. They did well in their minutes. So we can I think we can hope for that from these guys, and we can hope with Darnell Nurse being healthy that he really reaches a new level of maturity in terms of his play and decision-making and soundness of his decision-making because he's headed into that same age group. He's not been there all these years Mm -hmm. and he's played the tough, such tough competition, but now he's at that age. He's in that prime time for his NHL career as a defenseman. And we may see him suddenly become very steady and smart as a defensive hockey player in a way that, you know, where he struggled, where, where they, most of them struggle until they hit that spot of having that, you know, whatever it is, 400 games of experience and then they're ready to go it takes a long time to figure it out so and and in terms of the tough defensemen like bringing in these big tough like you know making that move well i'm gonna say they've got deharney kesselring um samarukov nimalainen they've got all of these candidates mm-hmm. on the farm who aren't 20 right you know they're kesselring's the youngest of that group these guys are between the ages of 20 and 25 and they should be good to go. Um, you don't need to to trade, I think, for for this player if you're the Oilers or sign this player. Like if you can get one for a million dollars, I'm not going to complain because that's you know if you can you can send them to the AHL if you don't need them. That that might not be a bad idea. But they ha- they're stocked with this kind of player in the farm, so they should have a steady flow of highly experienced uh, possibilities at least for the third pairing if you're looking for that really big physical player. 
which I think you need in the regular season at times, especially um, mm-hmm. to get you through, you know, when you're going to go play Calgary or some team uh, that doesn't have Johnny Gaudreau anymore and is going to really look to rough things up. So you 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 need that player now and then. Uh, and the Oilers will, they've got lots of candidates and and some of them might even be turn out to be okay puck movers as well. Like Kessel Ring has come, he's still young and is, and Sam Marukov certainly has shown that ability. So some of them might actually have that skill as well. So there's some good prospects on defense. And I don't think the Oilers need to bring in a, um, maybe one more guy if they're des- you know, if they think that's wise. And it may- maybe it is. But I think they're covered in a way because these guys are, some of them are very experienced hockey, pro hockey players. Now, and another way to look at it, of course, is that um, you talk in terms of a third pairing guy. Well, last year, uh, Many, if not most of the nights that we saw Marcus Niemelainen, the orders were going with seven defensemen. And they did that 7-11 split a lot of time, including yeah. the entire time that Duncan Keith was hurt when uh, Woodcroft took over the team. Right, Keith got hurt the night before, and he missed, I think, nine games. And for all nine of those games, the orders went 11-7, and they used Broberry and Niemelainen. And at that point, Lagesson that they hadn't traded for Kulak yet. Uh, splitting the minutes up rather than having, uh, you know, your standard second pair, third pairing guy. And it may be that with Keith permanently out of the picture, that's sort of the default alignment for the Oilers in 22-23 uh, is to go with 70. And Excellent have, point. You know, have have Nima in there that, you know, you want some hitting while well, you've got it there and, and you can insert him at times without necessarily having to commit, you know, 17, 18 minutes to the guy. And you've got, you know, a few, just a little more options at your disposal. That is an excellent point. I hadn't even thought of that, Bruce. Like, really, really uh, sharp uh, observation. And I think we're going to see that. We'll see probably a ton of it because it really mm-hmm. then maximizes. We saw what happens. It maximizes right the time. The yeah, we saw it. McDavid and Drysaddle then can get out there for more shifts. It screws up the other teams. You know, these coaches like to go with the four lines, get that flow going. It's It upsets that on the other team. So... We'll see that for sure. That's Woodcroft's one of his cards in his his deck. It's, throws down the Queen of Spades on uh, the other on the opposition. All right, let's leave it there, Bruce. Thanks for. Unless you have a final observation, any other thoughts or? Uh, well, other than um, Reed Schaefer being signed, and that's just sort of business as usual. And the rookie or uh, the uh, development camp first one in three years having occurred, and some you know. Some positive signs there, mind you. I'm a positive observer of young prospects, so I always look for the look for the look for the the upside. And I yeah. saw plenty of it from guys like Matvey Petrov, and uh, you know James Hamlin. That guy, that guy's waiting in the weeds. You know he's a good player. He's small, but uh, he's just getting better and better. And uh, they earned his NHL contract, and he's a, a late bloomer, but, you know, he's in the Mark Arcabello class. Like, I don't suppose you can expect him to come in and blow the league away. Uh, on the other hand, you know, guys like Yanni Gord uh, got signed in a similar way, where they came out of the minor leagues before they ever got an NHL contract. So uh, I like that guy a lot. And, they, you know, they've got... Um, They've got some. Uh, they got some young, good young players down there in the system, and of course we'll be talking about and certainly writing about them much more in uh, the next few weeks as we get into our annual cult hockey prospects series. I just did a quick check on Twitter to see if there's any news, mm-hmm. 
and it's got TMZ, the gossip site, uh-huh. as a story about Evander Kane hitting mm-hmm. Rodeo Drive, Rodeo Drive on it for a shopping spree um, before uh, uh, as he heads into the new season and some people are reacting to that. I just think, hey, he's got the money. Um, his, wife just had a, his wife just had a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, if he wants to buy her some nice clothes, go for it, man. We got a we got a um, rodeo drive out here in St. Albert, but I, I haven't noticed any sort of high end uh, stores on it though. So we must be talking about another one. This must be another one. Let's see here. That's not coming I up. I got either. a Sunset Boulevard here too. We got lots of cool streets. You got a Hollywood <laughs> sign on the hill. All right, and Bruce. We got paths right along the riverside, David. You did. I'm the very envious. Of our chat. Yes. Envious of your paths, Bruce. It's hmm. so nice, and it's a. Oh God, I've written about this issue mighty for. Stu- I've written stu- about this issue for 25 years, and uh, we're we've done so well in the River Valley in a number of ways. But this is a a major lack of vision and imagination from uh, Edmonton City Councils, which uh, fails to exploit to the fullest our prime asset in the city, which I think is is borderline. Well, it's it's obviously stupid, so I'll leave it at that. Bruce, thanks for talking. All right, thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. I walked in.